You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State Representative Scott Psyche has represented the Kaka'ako Alamoana District for nearly three decades. In 2012, he voted for a ceded land settlement that gave the Office of Hawaiian Affairs a land base in what is generally known as Kaka'ako Makai. Now, as House Speaker, does he see things differently? He joins us live as a bill to lift development restrictions on the area is being debated in the Senate this week. Good morning, uh, Speaker. Hey, hi, Catherine. Thanks for um, inviting me today. Well, thank you. I know you're getting ready to go down to floor session, uh, but I appreciate your time. Uh, what is it that you want uh, the uh, um, folks in your district and uh, across Oahu to understand about this settlement? Well, I think there are a couple of points, Catherine. The first is that um, you know I would like the public to know that the legislature over the past few years has really made um, a great uh, taken some action to address the Native Hawaiian issues in our community. And um, just for example, um, a few months ago in May, we approved um, uh, funding for OHA, for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, um, $65 million appropriation plus an annual payment of $21.5 million. We also approved um, a settlement in, in the the Hawaiian Homelands class action lawsuit called Kalima versus uh, DHHL, and that was a $325 million settlement uh, that, that we approved. Um, so we have you know, prioritized and um, uh, Hawaiian, unmet Hawaiian needs um, that, um, that required our, our attention. The second, the second point is that um, the Kakako Makai issue, um, I I believe is really uh, an issue of planning. It's how how do we plan uh, development in our community? Um, I've always felt that Kakaka Makai uh, is one of the last remaining parcels of land that could be used as open space, as park space um, that can provide ocean access for all residents on our island, not just those who live in Kakaako. And so that's why it's, um, you know, it's been an important issue for me. We have seen, uh, you know, some of the uh, ads that OHA has been running uh, that talk about, you know, we need to be made whole uh, and that they want the right to be able to, you know, develop residential uh, units, you know, on, on that parcel. Uh, but, you know, we saw what happened with uh, A and, and B uh, when this ban did go into effect. Uh, and we'll find out from the Senate, you know, what they do on Thursday uh, with this bill. Uh, but but talk about, you know, where you think the House is falling on this issue. Right. So the legislature made a concerted, concerted decision in 2005 to restrict residential development at Kakaku Makai. And the purpose, um, the purpose was to ensure that we maximize open space, green space, um, park space um, on the Makai side of Alamana Boulevard. As I mentioned earlier, Kakaka Makai is really the last remaining parcel of land that can be kept open for the general public. Um, in 2012, um, the Governor Abercrombie um, entered into a settlement agreement with OHA that transferred Kakaka Makai to OHA at that time, the land was zoned for commercial use up to 200 feet. And um, just keep in mind also, Catherine, that Kakakamakai is under state jurisdiction, so it's, it's the state. The state is responsible for the land use and zoning um, requirements in that area. But state law allows for, and it still allows for, commercial development up to 200 feet. Um, at the time of the settlement agreement, the um, Everybody knew that the restriction on residential development was still in place. Right. Eyes wide open. Uh, you know, we also have heard from OHA that, you know, the whole moniker Lib Work Play, if they say if it's good enough for Howard Hughes, uh, it should be good enough for OHA. Uh, but they are asking for, what, a 40-story uh, exemption, right, to go up with a high-rise there. Yes, yeah, so OHA did introduce a bill um, this session um, that would uh, authorize, that would basically um, remove the ban on residential development. Um, 
one of the um, requests in the bill is to authorize uh, development of residential high-rise residential buildings up to two, up to 400 400 feet, which is what is happening across the street on the Maka side of Alamona Boulevard. But that's kind of you know I think that's one of the concerns is that um, are there too many you know are there just too many high-rises being built in this area? Um, and um, you know I think that's a, that's a, a question for for that affects the general public, not just those who reside in Kakako. You know, uh, I know that the Friends of Kiwalos had an event last night where they talked about other options, including an idea floated by uh, former HCDA director John Whalen that they look at maybe a land swap and look at the stadium entertainment district. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it seems you know it seems that um, Oho's position now is that the settlement agreement um, that was executed in 2012 and approved by the legislature um, does not provide Oha with um, you know the amount of value that was pr- was promised at the time. The settlement agreement was valued at 200 million dollars, and that was because appraisals were were done over uh, on Kakakumakai. One appraisal was done by OHA, the second was done by the state, and both appraisals um, uh, ended up with a $200 million valuation. So the two appraisals, the two independent appraisals were in line with each other, and that's how the $200 million um, valuation was was, was agreed upon. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, you've got this bill that's uh, uh, going to come up on Thursday in the Senate. Um, how do we navigate this if we entertain an idea of a land swap or something else? Right, so I feel that if, you know, and I've, I've, made, I've, I've mentioned this to a few times over the past few years, that if they feel that the settlement agreement does not, does not meet the, the value that they expected, then we should reopen the settlement agreement. We should re we should discuss and even renegotiate the terms of any settlement. You know, if this settlement agreement had been agreed upon uh, in a in a court under a lawsuit, then you know we would have to go back to the judge to request authorization to reopen the settlement agreement to renegotiate it. And that's something you know that is. It is possible for us to go back to the table to discuss the terms of the settlement. Um, it's something that I have offered to assist with and to make a priority here at the legislature. Um, but in order to do that, also, Catherine, we need to we need more information. We need some clarification on exactly what OHA's position is. And for example, um, you know, OHA has um, told us that they want to build affordable housing at Kakakumakai, only affordable housing, no luxury development. Um, but at the same time, the bill that they introduce seeks an exemption from the affordable housing requirements that are in place at Kakakumakai. Um, the bill you know, has also told us that they want to build housing, uh, 400 foot buildings on only three parcels, but the bill that was introduced would allow them to build at that height at any of the ten parcels that they own at Kakakumakai. So there's some, there's some, um, there is a need for us to clarify exactly what OHA's position is, um, not just what they tell us, but what is also in their bill. So do we do this then uh, within the context of yeah this bill and and uh, and then see see what happens. Well, I think, you know, a, 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 reopening the settlement agreement is, will require a lot of time. It'll require a lot of work, research. Um, it'll require a lot of discussion. It's something that can't be done through um, through a through a bill. Mm-hmm. There has to be, a, a, you know, negotiations done in good faith before a bill is introduced. And okay. that's what happened in 2012. Okay, so, so that, that would then be the scenario. All right. Well, we certainly appreciate your time this morning, a speaker, and uh, we'll, you know, get you back down <laughs> to the fourth session. But thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Catherine. Aloha.
That was House Speaker Scott Psyche, who represents the Kaka'ako, Alamoana area. He was talking about a bill to allow the Office of Hawaiian Affairs to develop residential units in an area of Kaka'ako Makai that OHA has named Hakuone. You're back with the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Well, you know, it is Valentine's Day, but it's also the conversation's 12th anniversary, so we're testing your memory of our show. When HBR first launched the show on uh, February 14th, 2011, the goal was to share long-form discussions that took a deeper look at important local issues and interesting topics. On air, you heard original hosts Beth Ann Kozlovich and Chris Vandercook. Behind the scenes, the show was produced by Kayla Rosenfeld and Lillian Song, who Lillian is still part of our team today. And what would any show be without a theme song? You might remember this original opener. Well, for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of the song used as our original theme song? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. In Governor Josh Green's State of the State uh, address, he talked about hydrogen, and we now know more about where we may see that develop. Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth spoke with us yesterday. He was in Honolulu to meet with lawmakers about the county's priorities, which includes housing, all tied to the health of Hawaii Island's economy. Housing is probably the biggest priority for everybody in the state right now. As we look at a lot of the problems that we're having, uh, problems with finding employees, that you know, our county is having hard, hard times finding employees. I know that uh, I think Honolulu and some of the other counties are having problems. But if you look at our businesses, our hotels, you know, most of our hotels could hire between 100 and 150 people tomorrow if they had the personnel. And you know, a big part of that is making sure that people have affordable housing to live in. And so, you know, if we don't create housing, we're going to keep on losing people and you know our kids are are going to be moving away and Hawaii Island we talk about you know creating a Hawaii Island that is sustainable that helps people thrive and succeed and when you think about sustainability a lot of different thoughts come into people's mind for me what I think about is the ability to allow our kids to raise their kids here in Hawaii and you know in order for that to happen you have to have affordable housing quality jobs, and then a lot of the other things that people think about when they hear the word sustainability and environment that allows people to, you know, stay here, that people want to stay here, that's clean, that's neat, that, you know, um, has those things that, that are anchors, including our culture. So there's a lot of things when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about that. But number one is housing, because if people can't afford to live here, then we lose right off the top of the bat. Yeah, and you mentioned that your kids live on the mainland right now. Yeah, I have two daughters living in New York and a son living in Los Angeles. And you know, I would love them, as most parents would love their kids, to be able to live here and have their grandkids here. And 
I, I don't see that happening. And it's hard because, you know, one, you look around and you say, okay, you know, what are the jobs? What do they pay? And where can I afford to live? Yeah, you know, we start looking at what the jobs are of the future. And when I think of the jobs of the future, most of them are related to STEM or STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics. Those are the the jobs that are going to be the quality jobs of the future. They're the quality jobs of today. And as we start looking at the ways of getting there, you know, we're thinking about things like energy and hydrogen. Um, a, a lot of the things that we're thinking about for the future that are those quality jobs have something to do with STEM or STEAM. You are looking at ways to figure out how can we cut through some of the red tape to get this housing up? Absolutely. We actually have a bill at the legislature right now. It's HB 920. And I understand uh, after some meetings today that that bill will have a hearing on Thursday. It will be their second hearing. And basically what this does is it allows the county councils to change the laws as far as the building codes that will go under the requirements of the state building code requirements. And just to kind of give you an idea, what happens is the state building code adopts an international code and then the counties have two years to make changes. If they don't make changes after that two-year period, then you're kind of stuck with them. And there's a lot of laws that you know seem really good at first that we're stuck with. There's some things that uh, in those codes that are really for the mainland and places where you have a lot of snow that really don't make a lot of sense in Hawaii. And yeah, you learn about them sometimes as time goes on. And we're, we're seeing that our permits get bogged down with these things. And I think every island, every permitting uh, section building permit section on in the state is having similar issues. And so let's look at what works, what doesn't work, and get rid of it. And I'll, I'll give you one example. One of the things that the new code requires is for wind speeds over 130 miles per hour, you have to have a licensed engineer sign off on that. Well, that sounds really good, but a licensed engineer could take you about eight months to find. And the cost that that's adding to houses just to have the engineer put a stamp on, oftentimes really not necessary. It wasn't required prior to 2018. It's very costly and it drives the prices up, which is making housing not affordable. The time that it delays things is another thing that, you know, it costs a lot of money. And there's things that are in our codes that cause confusion and uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty and you can't have a time when things are moving quickly, the system bogs down. So you know, we recently hired a consultant to look at our code, and we found a lot of things that we can fix. We're starting to, to make those changes. But the idea is to how do we get these things so the whole state can have their permits moving quickly. We are all grappling with everything from, you know, vacation rental problems in, mm -hmm. in neighborhoods. You know, each island, you know, each county is a little bit different, but you, you want to find a way to fix our systems if they're broke. Yes, and there's a lot of systems throughout the state that are broke, and that's what, you know, I think all of the mayors, we, we talk with each other, we're, we're all trying to find solutions. And I think, you know, by and by, we, we are making progress in, in fixing some of these things. You know, you talked about sustainability. I know that the Big Island has a number of cesspools. They've got to convert over to something more environmentally friendly. Yes. And I know there are efforts underway at uh, NELHA, the Natural Energy Lab, to try and get some of those tanks, those large tanks produced here on island to, to create not only a, a way to be able to cut the costs when it comes to converting, but then create jobs. Absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting. I think the company that you're talking about takes recycled plastics and makes some of the cesspools, um, excuse me, septic, septic, tanks. septic tanks are part of the solution. Excuse me, cesspools are the problem. We have about 40,000 cesspools on Hawaii Island um, that we need to remedy. But we're also looking at our wastewater systems. We have real big issues with our wastewater systems on Hawaii Island, including one that, you know, we're about to put out a bid for over $100 million. It will be the most expensive thing probably that the county does during my administration. Um, but if we don't fix our cesspool, our wastewater system, excuse me, you could have millions of gallons of sewage going out into the ocean. And, you know, we talk about sustainability. Who wants to live in, in an area that has sewage going out into the ocean? Um, you know, that's something that we just can't do, so we need to fix those things. As we fix uh, 
our wastewater systems, we have opportunities that we've never thought about before. One of those opportunities is creating energy. And so we're looking at creating hydrogen from our wastewater systems, as well as capping our old landfill, making methane, turning that into hydrogen, using that to power our buses and maybe some of our larger equipment. Wow, so really kind of cutting edge stuff because we need to get to our goals. Yeah, you know, in the the State of the State uh, address, um, the governor brought up uh, about the hydrogen um, hub grant that, you know, Hawaii is very competitive. That could be over a billion dollars coming into the state of Hawaii. And uh, Hawaii Island, I, I feel like we're really moving forward at pretty good speed and making sure that happens. We're, we're already looking at you know hydrogen buses. We have uh, one that's coming online pretty soon. We're looking at different ways of making hydrogen. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you, you make that from gas, or so you can, but you can make it from solar energy, wind energy, geothermal energy. As I said, re- reconverting what we're doing with our wastewater systems, methane gas. There's a whole bunch of different opportunities there and we're looking into to all of those. And, you know, I just talked with uh, University of Hawaii's uh, Carl Kim, and I think he was uh, attending a transportation uh, conference mm-hmm. where they were going to be talking about hydrogen and buses and, you know, how do we make this work? Yeah, and technology is, is moving at breakneck speed. I mean, you think about computers in, what, 1960s, 1970s, they were, they'd filled this room, and now what would fill this room is on your cell phone. Uh, you know, hydrogen, as people start looking into different ways of creating hydrogen, a clean energy, the cleanest energy, I think you're going to start seeing things. Our goal is to not just think about today, but where we're going to be in 20 years. One of my favorite quotes is from Wayne Gretzky, the, you know, the famous hockey player, who says that a great hockey player doesn't skate to where the puck is, he skates to where the puck is going to be. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do, whether we're talking about hydrogen, whether we're talking about our building codes. It's trying to get ahead of the game so our kids have a better tomorrow. Yeah, it's planning ahead. Keep your eye on the prize, you know, and how do we get there? Yeah, you know, and like we talked about earlier, I was at the legislature, and luckily for, for us on Hawaii Island, we got some great representatives that are helping us along the way, and, you know, senators as well. So we, we we're very fortunate, I think, uh, of the relationships we have there as well. And you're fortunate uh, with the with the governor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and he's a doctor, and he's got health care on his radar. He's got health care, which is another issue that we mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're we're working on together with the governor. Health care on Hawaii Island is in a critical state. We have a huge shortage of health care professionals, and when the governor talks about you know helping our doctors. And, you know, putting money into our hospital systems, it is so important to take care of those people who are taking care of us. That's a huge issue for me, of course, having a heart attack a couple of years ago, realizing that if we don't take care of those people, then what happens to any of our family members if they have something go on with them? Well, you know, and then I think we saw during the pandemic, you know, what happened, you know, early on with the Veterans Home and those numbers. And I mean, the whole community just concerned about you know, their capacity and how do we take care of our own. And yeah, that's got to be a priority. Absolutely is. Well, thank you so much, Mayor Roth. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. That was Hawaii Island Mayor Mitch Roth, who talked to us yesterday afternoon before jumping on a flight back to Hilo. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. As of February 13, Hawaiian Telecom has discontinued carrying HPR along with all other local radio stations. You can listen to HPR on hawaiipublicradio.org, our free HPR mobile app, your smart speaker, or on the radio. Please direct your comments to Hawaiian Telecom at 877-482-2211.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of art experiences for the community. Learn more about art classes, workshops, and drop-in art making for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Reality Check today turns our attention to the 30 by 30 conservation goal set by Governor e. David E. Gay. Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Uh, good morning, and uh, kudos for the Burt Bacharach there, by the way. That was great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, our story today is uh, one written by Marcel Henri. Right. I'm filling in for Marcel. He is off. But um, this is something that got a lot of news way back in 2016. I was actually uh, covering it. And when the governor announced this 30 by 30 marine conservation goal, uh, it got a lot of news. And what it means is he committed the state to managing 30 percent of our nearshore waters by the year 2030. Uh, and this is something that the United Nation is pursuing as an international goal. It's a target for the Biden administration as well. Even Josh Green, as a candidate for governor as recently as November, indicated support for the 30 by 30. But that has now changed. Marcel is reporting that the administration under Governor Green quietly uh, has, has scrapped the 30 by 30. The decision was made by Don Chang. She is the person running the Department of Land and Natural Resources, um, who, of course, is awaiting um, confirmation hearings from the Senate. But Chang said that they listened to the community and they f felt that they had to adjust this plan accordingly. Well, you know, it's so funny because usually, you know, you know folks want a catchy slogan, right, that people can <laughs> can, can right. fall in behind. Uh, but this one turned out to be a little controversial, so maybe not such a good one for Hawaii. I don't know. Well, this has certainly involved a lot of community input, and the the groups that have been testifying heavily, consistently, are those who, who fish, the, mm -hmm. the people in the fishing community. Obviously, it's their livelihood. Uh, there has been reports of people being confused about exactly what 30 by 30 would mean, whether it's counterproductive to trying to conserve as well as to have people fish. Uh, Chang herself has, has said that she wants to to have safeguards in place. She, she doesn't want to imperil marine life, but she has indicated in this memo that um, Marcel was able to obtain is that she wants more community-driven decision-making involved here. But it does raise a big question. Who else, if anybody else, did DLNR listen to? You know, the, the, it is a very vocal group, the fishing community. We're hearing from them as well in Kakako Makai right now regarding OHA's plans. And so uh, the one thing that is raised in this story is, is whether that community listening has really been equitable, if you will. So, gosh, so they just kind of quietly pulled this back? <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, and it's, it, it sounds like it, it, there, were, there might still be some tweaks going on. It looks like some of the 30 by 30, in other words, some of the protecting nearshore waters may actually still apply in some parts of our coastline. We're hearing that from some in the Division of Aquatic Resources that falls underneath DLNR. So it's not a... Uh, I mean, it's, yes, the plan has been killed, but there are still efforts to, to protect our waters, to protect our fish, to protect our coral. By the way, um, there's been a lot of miscommunication out there on exactly what this would do. We should be clear, this would not ban fishing in those waters. That's just not what was going to be in play. Although a lot of people, you know, with the Internet these days, thinking they can, that that's exactly what it was going to do. In fact, what it would have required is new regulations on, on gear and bag limits. Uh, DLNR has struggled to get this message out clearly, and it doesn't help with the, all this misinformation that's been circulating. So it turns out 30 by 30 has become a, a, a negative and, and making pe some people go crazy uh, because of this misinformation. There are some other numbers, though, that are that are pretty solid. This is coming from the Nature Conservancy, and 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 they explain, they help illustrate why um, conserving these waters isn't so important. Hawaii has lost sixty percent of its coral over the last forty years. That's that's due to climate change. Sorry for those out there who don't think it's real, but it is. Uh, we have also lost ninety percent of some uh, catch rates among some fish population. And this uh, only, I think, underscores how we 
I mean, there's a reason why the, the UN and the U.S. are not giving up on this goal, and we'll see what the Green Administration uh, does with this. We should also say, Ching was asked, well, does this have anything to do with your confirmation hearings? Because mm-hmm. she's been identified as one of the more controversial appointments by Governor Green. Uh, Chang has said, no, it, it, that's not involved at all. But I'm certain that you will be having people bringing this issue up on all likelihood during her Senate confirmation hearings. So while we won't hear too much about this 30 for 30 30 by 30 moniker doesn't mean there isn't work uh, going on behind the scenes. Exactly. That's important important point to stretch. Uh, stress. Right. Thank you so much, Catherine. All right. Thank you, Chad. That was Honolulu Civil Beats editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Read Marcel on Ray's story online at civilbeat.org. Call the Midwife. You might know it as the hit series show on PBS, but it's also the subject of debate this legislative session. HPR's Sabrina Bowden joins us to give us the snapshot of midwifery here in the islands. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So as you said, there's currently a bill in the state house that's looking to define midwife and traditional birth attendant licensing laws, and it's been nicknamed Sovereign's Law. So as an overview, there are 28 licensed midwives in the state, and of that, 15 came from the mainland with licensed certificates already. So that means there's only a few who are trained here. And that's data from the state home birth task force that was put together in 2019. Christy Dwart chaired that task force, and she's currently the president of the Hawaii Home Birth Collective. It's her daughter, Sovereign, who is the reason for the nickname on this bill. She is 12, and she wants to become a traditionally trained midwife. But because of current laws, the term midnight midwife Uh, wouldn't be applicable. So the term traditional birth attendant is used. So back in 2017, the state auditor released a report on the regulation of midwifery. And that report was used in 2019 for a law requiring a license to be needed uh, for a certified nurse midwife. And it also set a deadline for license renewal or exemptions of July 2023, which is where we are now. And uh, Chrissy Dwart explains some of the findings from the audit. The state auditor reports say there were traditional midwives practicing, you know, so there was no oversight. We finally had legal access at that point. In 2017, when the Sunset Report came out again, it acknowledged traditional midwives here, a legitimate sector of the midwifery profession. The report said recommendation number one for all midwives to have access to licensure. And number two, for the legislature to actually look into if a national private midwifery organization was to be used, because if they used it, it would benefit one segment of the midwifery program, the Western midwives, once again. And he said it would unnecessarily and unfairly create a competitive advantage. And that's what it did. And along with that advantage, it erases. So Sovereign's Law would essentially allow for a path for traditional birth attendants through other regulations, verifications, and exemptions. And if a law doesn't get passed, those who have a license from the Midwifery Education Accreditation Council would be the only people who are allowed to continue practicing. Hmm. And those types of certifications could cost upwards of $30,000 worth of schooling, and many would have to go out of state for training. There's no place in Hawaii where you can do that. And that's one of the big issues here. So Rachel Cornell Strumpf is one of two midwives on Hawaii Island. She was the state's first licensed midwife, and she received all of her training traditionally, which isn't common. The licensure really made things tricky for the midwives in Hawaii. Uh, A lot of us were not certified professional midwives. It's a new credential, really. It didn't exist until the mid-90s. So all of the midwives that predate, whose practice predates the CPM credential, practiced as traditional midwives on the islands. And when the licensure law passed, it really created a rift between all of the midwives and, and our community because very few of us were actually able to be licensed. There were um, two dozen midwives who were not able to be licensed because of the, the new law that passed who are working as traditional birth attendants. 
currently. And if the House Bill 955 doesn't pass through this year, all of those traditional birth attendants will be illegal to practice starting in July. So what that's going to do is further take away adequate care for people who are giving birth. So who's opposed to this bill? Uh, Opponents include the Hawaii section of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And on the House floor last week, Representative Lisa Martin of Oahu was the only no vote cast in the bill's second hearing. I think that everybody should be licensed when providing this kind of very important health care and that standards should be met. And I understand that three years ago, when the deadline was given, that was a a time period to resolve some of the issues and and agree on a path forward. And I'd hate to just keep kicking the can down the road while people um, are still practicing taking money for a service in our state without any um, set of standards. I lived in my mid-20s. I worked in Guatemala. I ran a child and infant nutrition program. And there, in very traditional Mayan villages, um, almost everybody was attended by traditional midwives um, with no particular um, certification. The only people that were not were the people that could afford to go to the hospital. Um, We did have relatively high maternal mortality, and I saw the consequences of that among the children that I cared for when they were orphaned. Interesting. Yeah, so there's a big push in the rural uh, neighbor island areas to support this bill on Maui and on Hawaii Island. They are passing resolutions in support of this bill, as well as there is a second committee hearing tomorrow in front of the House's Committee on Consumer Protection and Commerce. All right. Well, thank you so much for shedding some light on this issue. Fascinating. We have been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden. You can uh, read her story on hawaiipublicradio.org. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're celebrating our show's 12th anniversary by testing your knowledge of our original theme song. Today, the show opens with a gypsy jazz melody, thanks to local band Gypsy 808. But 12 years ago, we featured another intro. It was written and performed by the 1970s Dutch progressive rock band Focus. You may remember them for their 1973 hit, Hocus Pocus. The quartet was formed in 1969 in Amsterdam, and they released 16 studio albums between 1970 and 2021. Now the stories vary as to how a track by a Dutch band became the theme song for a Hawaii radio talk show. We may never know for sure. But if you're a longtime fan of our show and are into obscure 70s rock, then you know the answer to today's Backyard Quiz is My Sweetheart. And we stumped you on that one. No winners today. If you have an idea for our quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. This Saturday, HPR presents Komaikai. This in-person show is a part of HPR's Mele Hawaii concert series at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Halehaku Siberi Akaka, Hoku Zudermeister and Malie Lyman join Pomaika'i for this intimate performance. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC. Designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com.
with romance in the air this Valentine's Day. Something to plan for might be Hawaii Opera Theater staging of Donizetti's comedy, The Elixir of Love, this weekend. The Italian classic will be sung in English and is set in present-day Hawaii outside a sugarcane farm with the Ko'olau Mountains in the background. It is the first HOT production in over 15 years to be designed and built locally. The Conversations Dillian Song caught up with General Director Andrew Morgan to talk about this rom-com that he's very fond of. It's actually one of my favorite operas ever, and there's a lot of different operas that I love, but this one has a special place in my heart. I started as a singer, then I got into stage directing, and the music of this was is so wonderful to sing as a tenor. One of the most famous arias is in this piece. <laughs> a furtive tear, is that the aria that people that's right. will really recognize? Yep, that's the one. That's the tenor aria that, that's uh, been in movies and, and things, so yeah, you'll definitely recognize that piece. That you yourself as a tenor? I have sung, yes, many years ago. But then I got the chance to direct it first once in Italian, then twice in English. And in fact, the English translation that we're doing, I've directed. But it's I like to say that there's not a cynical bone in this piece's body. It's just happy, real people, real characters, not too farcical, but just joyous. It celebrates love. It celebrates the human condition, the idea that we're not uh, we don't always have the confidence we need to to get to the next step with things, whether it's a relationship or our job or whatever. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a joyous piece and some of those beautiful music ever written. Your experience with it, coming up as a singer, as a tenor, kind of feels like this is an old friend. Oh, totally, yeah. And and every time I come back to this piece, and this time running the opera company, so not actually directing the show, but every time I open the score, whatever language we're doing it in, it is like a friend, an old friend that I'm coming back to and, and, and taking a look at it in different ways, which is the joy of, of coming back to things, whether you repeat a movie and see things you didn't see before. Same thing with opera. You can come back to it and, and just experience it in different ways. Hmm. And you're refreshing it this time around by actually localizing it for audiences. Yeah, definitely. That's exciting. Well, one of the things that I, I felt was really important for the company, because when I got here in May of 2019, been here almost four years, I was surprised by how much was being imported from the mainland. Singers, directors, conductors, sets were being shipped here, costumes were shipped here, even stage managers and things, you know, so many aspects of it. And I thought, we're a regional company and we are part of this community. We can't really say we're part of this community if we're not reflecting the community. And so, you know, my mandate really for the company is to be more of this place and not just in Hawaii. So we're doing a lot of different things, including this production. So this is the first new production, the company, the first physical production we've built in over 20 years. We have a scene shop out in Waipahu. It's really exciting times for the company. Very, very, you know, happy to get some of the preview shots. So seeing how some of the lay, the the costumes, very colorful, oh, very yeah. eye-catching. It's going to be beautiful, really beautiful. And I swear, I was like, I did a double take on the lay. I was like, are those real flowers? <laughs> You know, the other thing, too, is it's not too long. Just two hours and 15 minutes with one intermission. Again, this is a piece I think can be set kind of anywhere and any time. It's that timeless. It's not so specific where you feel like they have to be in powdered wigs or something. And so I thought, well, why not here, right here in Hawaii? Because I wanted to do it in English, this English translation that I've known so well for about 15 or 20 years. So we thought about it, and you know, because in Italian it's set in kind of a vineyard sort of setting, where the chorus is workers in the vineyards, and and the the elixir is actually a cheap bottle of Bordeaux, and and so we thought, well, why can't that translate? And there's a growing resurgence in growing sugarcane here for very high-end rum. Why not set it on a sugarcane farm? And so that's what we're doing. Our set designer Michelle Bisbee, who is actually on the faculty at UH Manoa. She and some of the, the production crew went out to the plantation village for inspiration. And obviously, plantations have a, a dark past, but that's why it's modern day. We didn't want to, it's a comedy, and, and you know, there's a place for talking about those experiences, but the comedy is not that. And so it, it's very whimsical aspect of a plantation. You'll notice that the house that is Adina's, he's the lead soprano, is very much that, that plantation style with the, you know, the green and the, the slanted roofs and things. And there's a wall of sugar cane that we're putting together. And then behind that will be a projection of the beautiful Ko'olau Mountains in the background. So very, very much a part of this community. So in the original Donizetti's version, mm -hmm. which I understand, history fun fact, that he wrote over 70 operas in his lifetime. He did. But it's this one that you're staging that's considered to be his most famous 
you're really localizing it, allowing the audience to kind of get a sense of place, seeing themselves, I guess, yeah. on stage. I mean, that's so much what all the arts should have been doing all along, but now we're really being forced to. And, and for me, it's not being forced to. It's a great passion of making art form, especially something that, that has so many negative connotations for so many opera. The word opera is like, oh my God, what is that? I mean, it's in Italian already, so it's like, oh my God, I don't trust that. I don't know that. You know. So the more we can break down those barriers, remove the obstacles that are perceived more than real, then I think we can provide a welcoming place for people. And I'd like to say that opera is for everyone. I do believe that in my heart. And maybe not every opera is for everyone, but but this one definitely, everyone, Keiki on up, are going to love this. And it's, it's just after Valentine's Day, so it's the perfect date night uh, for you. Okay. Well, as a person who is not very experienced seeing opera, I think I've only seen one, but that was before 2019. Okay. This was pre-COVID. We need to fix that. <laughs> I know. So, Like you were saying, people yeah. do have these preconceived notions of opera that, oh, it's like, it's my dad and mom's generation's music. It's something in another language. Why do I want to spend time reading slides? But because it's in English. And like you said, rom-com, you sold me on that. Yeah, it's definitely it's a rom-com. It, 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 you will recognize the tropes. You know, the, the boy loves the girl. The girl's ignoring the boy. The boy doesn't have the courage to get up his gumption to tell her how he feels. So Nemorino is the, the young protagonist, the tenor, and Adina is the soprano that he's in love with, and she ignores him. She's actually being courted by this dashing sergeant uh, in our playing, so it's going to be military, but it's uh, telecommunications, installing telephone wires and things. So he's just desperately afraid to say anything to her. So this quack snake oil salesman comes to town, and he's selling this tonic that's a cure-all tonic. Nemorino comes up to him and says, do you have a love potion? Because I I just think that the only way I'm going to win her heart is to give this love potion to her. And Dulcamara is the doctor, fake doctor, and he slaps a sticker on a bottle of wine in the show. We're changing it to rum, so a bottle of cheap rum, so not Hawaiian rum, <laughs> and sells it to him for whatever he has in his pocket. Basically, this is all I have. Oh, that's how much it costs. And so he, he ends up drinking the entire bottle and gets a little tipsy, but of course that lets him overcome his fear of approaching her and ends up actually ignoring her. I don't want to spoil the story, but it, it's a happy ending. She comes around and love is in the air at the end. And uh, yeah, it's a great story. Great story. And definitely really touching on that timeless theme of unrequited love. There's some speed bumps along the way, but like you promised, a happy ending. Definitely a happy ending. And so many wonderful tunes along the way, too. It's a it's a hummable opera. When, you're, when you leave the theater, you're going to be having earworms for the next couple days for this piece. It's just such great music. Okay. Andrew, just personally, when did you find opera? Oh, gosh. You know, my father was a huge opera fan. My mother was an amateur singer. She wasn't a big opera fan, mostly church stuff, yeah. But my dad liked to play the Texaco opera, the live broadcast from the Met on the radio. When it was on the television, it was he would commandeer the, you know, because in those days you only had one TV, right? <laughs> he would commandeer the TV to watch the operas, and I would sit in there for at least some of it. What really flipped the needle for me was in high school, actually. I got, I was blessed with doing three musicals in my senior year, and one one of them was an operetta, the Mikado. And that's when I started thinking, you know what? This operatic singing, I can do this. And so I went to school, and uh, my first, my dad took me to my first opera. He was very involved with Lyric Opera of Chicago. And I, I remember this to this day, but uh, it was just so powerful an experience sitting in that big opera house watching these amazing singers that are not amplified. They fill up a whole 3,000-seat auditorium, 2,000-seat here at the Blaisdell, with just the power of their voice and their acting skills. And and the way the orchestra comes together. It is it is the complete art. Once you get that bug bit, you, you can't go back. This is great. I think it's a wonderful introduction for people to know what's on tap and the fact that you have really made it very accessible, I think, will interest people. And yeah. that is going to be on the 17th and the 19th of February. And if you have cakey... We open up our final dress rehearsal for all our productions to Keiki and their parents or teachers. We call it Opera for Everyone. It's the final dress rehearsal, and that will be on Wednesday, February 15th at 7 p.m. Tickets are just $7 for the Opera for Everyone, and for the full performances, tickets start at just $30. It's a great piece. You will definitely, this is a great introduction to opera for you. It's great for all ages. It's just charming, great music, great singing. The cast is fantastic. They're doing dynamite work, so come. That's all you need to know. Come. 
And that was Hot's Andrew Morgan in HBR's Lillian Song talking about the English language production of Donizetti's classic comedy, The Elixir of Love, recreated and set on the island of Oahu. The Opera for Everyone final dress rehearsal show runs tomorrow, and the opera opens this weekend. We'll have details on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from former Governor Neil Abercrombie about the Kakako land deal of 10 years ago. What do you think about Kakako Makai or Hakuone? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.